0: Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Real quick, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity is out. Things are exciting around here. I am on a tour now, between now and the end of the year, uh, sharing this book, sharing these ideas with places all over North America. Check us out, strongtowns.org slash events. You'll find out when we're coming near you. This podcast today is with one of the people that I feature prominently in the book, one of the guys that has been the most inspiring to me and done just amazing work, amazing work with pennies. Paul Stewart, you're going to love, I promise. Take care, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Downs podcast. There's only one person in my new book that I quote from the Strong Downs podcast, from a conversation that we had. And that is a guy named Paul Stewart, who is the executive director of a group that I have told now, I was going to say hundreds, but we might not be at hundreds. We're certainly at dozens. I've told dozens of communities about as a model for them to look at. And I I truly believe this is so important that not only did I include it in my book, but I did. it, It is the one thing I pitched here in my hometown where they said, yeah, we'd be interested in talking to that guy. On the line from Oswego, New York, Paul Stewart. Welcome back to the Strong Downs podcast, Paul.
1: Hello again, Chuck. Good to be here.
0: Good to chat with you. And seriously, I I know that I invited you to come to Brainerd. I know we weren't able to work the logistics out. I'm I'm serious that we're going to make it happen at some point soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Three years ago, I believe. Yeah.
0: You are the only one that I had pitched here. You're the only one I pitched where everybody said, yeah, we would like to have that conversation. Very important work. So welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I wanna do this again because I think I I think we did this last time and you corrected me and then I promptly forgot. I'm a Minnesotan. We have a city here spelled the exact same way as your city that we call Oswego. How do you pronounce the name of your city again?
1: Just like that. It is. Oswego.
0: It's the same. Oswego. Yeah. Then I'm gonna proceed with confidence because I always feel like I'm, you know, I'm butchering. Maybe it's more sophisticated than that. Like it's not Oswego <laughs> or I'll also no, go or something no. yeah okay
1: no no you can proceed with confidence it's just <laughs> as we go to New
0: York okay um well, we're gonna talk about housing and in this country when we talk about the housing crisis and affordable housing people get visions of Manhattan or San Francisco or or Seattle, Portland, or Austin. And they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, housing prices are, are six to seven times income. There's this massive ratio. You're working on a different housing crisis. And the one that I find predominates in America and is really not spoken about. Can we go back like a decade maybe or even more and talk about what the, the neighborhoods of Oswego look like? You know, the, the challenge that you're facing kind of in a macro sense.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I also see the national conversation about affordable housing and 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 markets where people are priced out of living there, and it seems to get all the attention when, in fact, that's not the relevant problem for probably the vast majority of middle to small cities throughout the United States, including ours. So that conversation just sails right past us. I mean, you're talking about you know the challenge that is faced by um, many uh, uh, sort of post industrial cities is actually population loss, net out migration of families over the last 30 to 40 to 50 years. And as a result of that, an excess of housing supply relative to the population that's there. You know, in the case of Oswego, a community built for a population of 25,000 that peaked in the oh, late 60s, early 70s in terms of population. At around twenty-five thousand, and is now you know eighteen thousand. So when you have those sorts of characteristics, um, you 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 tend to lose owner occupancy. You have a lower population than before because supply now exceeds demand. Your housing prices actually are dropping, and cities like these need to worry about attracting and maintaining residents and how to stay strong. They would gladly welcome more people wanting to move into them. But uh, historically, the trend has been in many of the Rust Belt cities, just the opposite. And so rather than solving the problem of affordability, which is not the primary challenge of a city like Oswego to solve, the primary challenge for us to solve is one of demand. And that is demand for living in our community demand to want to buy the houses in our community demand to grow our community So we can become more fiscally solvent. We can become more stable and our, our, our neighborhoods can strengthen. And so in that respect, uh, affordability is not the challenge. It's market demand is the challenge.
0: Right here in my town of Brainerd, when we look at this challenge, what we have decided, uh, and I think this is, you're the exception to this in a way. So this is something I see everywhere. What we have decided is the way to deal with this problem is basically to try to become more attractive to people who don't live here. And a lot of times that means how do we lower our prices? So how do we um, give away more infrastructure? How do we give away building permits? How do we give away land and give away houses and, and, and make things as cheap as possible? How do we give away our services? And then how do we subsidize, in a sense, the kind of things that we that we want to see? It's an outward-looking philosophy. How do we become more attractive to someone who's not here? I'm not saying your city's done none of that, but you've also layered on, you you have, your group, uh, has layered on this more inward facing kind of mindset. Can you talk just about the difference between those two mindsets?
1: Yeah, I'll be happy to. What you just described is what I call the desperate date syndrome, <laughs> which is where
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, like please come and and we'll 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 do anything to attract you. We'll give this away. we'll subsidize this we'll um we'll give you all sorts of tax breaks. look, our housing is so cheap, you know what can we do? And it comes from a place of a lack of confidence in what you have to offer. And and in doing, and ironically, in doing so, in, in giving the shop away, you literally begin to devalue your own community uh, because many times uh, what people think the outside community wants in, in your community is not necessarily what they really want, and it is not likely to make you stronger. It's likely to make you weaker. You know, we can talk all day about things like you talk about often, like, uh, um, increasing automotive access to your downtown and things like that. So so people can more easily and quickly commute in and out. But it also applies even in neighborhoods. We take a completely different approach to the problem of attracting people. We say first and foremost, we wanna get something what we call healthy neighborhoods in our community. And, and a healthy neighborhood is a very straightforward concept. And that is a healthy neighborhood is a place where it makes sense to invest your time and your energy and your money. And if it makes sense to do those things, people will do them. And that includes buying into the neighborhoods. We like to change things so it makes sense to buy into our neighborhoods and not to do so at some kind of a discount or some sort of a complex financial bribe or whatever you might be thinking of. We first and foremost are concerned about maintaining the residents that we do have that are here and still investing. And at the same time, attracting other people who don't wanna commute into our communities, but want to live in our communities and in our traditional neighborhoods, including the ones in and around downtown. And we've been engaged in that respect, a process of not giving the shop away, not making it easier, but rather growing the value of what we have. It's a market orientation. Growing the value of our community writ large the value of our blocks, the values of our streets, the quality of our housing so that we can effectively compete for people. And we've, we're now in our sixth year of doing that. And I would argue quite successfully based upon the data we now have.
0: There's going to be people yelling at me because they're going to know the name of the song and the band. There's a 60s song, right? You can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Is that that the name of the song? Love the one you're with? I, I think it might be.
1: It, um, I think it might be.
0: Okay. The approach that you've taken feels like that in like a genuine way, right? Like it's not a, um, it's not a slogan. Like let's pretend these people are cool. I think the thing that struck me the most about you and about the work that, that you're doing and at the work that really now has grown to be this whole kind of neighborhood effort is doing is that th- there are people taking a genuine I'm going to go ahead and use the word love, a genuine love uh, in each other, as opposed to uh, pining for something that is not there. It's kind of almost living in the moment. Is this a good description, Paul?
1: I think it's partly a good description. I I should probably expand a little bit more about what it is. So I think we start with this assumption that everybody... most people have a choice I don't mean to say everybody has a choice where they can live but but many many people have choices where they can live and and so if you want to have a strong community you want to have it so that your own residents your own neighbors choose to stay they say yeah I want to be here because I like living here and you also want to have people that are looking for places to live, say, you know, I choose to live there because it's valuable enough. It's something I want. I'd love to live in that neighborhood. I'd love to live in that community. And so what we operate from is this idea of understanding that people make choices. And for 40 years, people had been making the choice to leave communities like ours. And so how to turn that around. And this is where I actually think without realizing it, you and I in completely separate spheres, arrived at a very similar conclusion, which is if you want people to love your city, if you want people to move into your city, if you want to keep the residents that you have, then you need to shower your city and your neighborhoods with love. And that sounds soft, that sounds silly, but I've got the market data that suggests that it works. And what I mean by that more specifically is rather than building out on the periphery, rather than focusing on things like, well, how much cheaper can we make it? How much more affordable housing can we build? How much supply can we keep adding? Even though there's not enough demand, we wanna grow demand. And so we find ways uh, to our organization, we partner with motivated blocks of people in our traditional neighborhoods to reinvest incrementally year over year over year in our targeted neighborhoods. Um, And it's only grown since 2013, and in that time, I mean, we could talk about perhaps in more detail down the road here, but uh, in that time, we've had multiple uh, formerly dilapidated properties be rehabbed to really high standards. Former sort of slumlord rental properties get converted back to owner occupancy with owners that are proud to be here. And people see this happening throughout the entire community. I mean, the, you know, Suigo is now considered, I think, regionally a place that is turning the corner, if not on the rise in some circles, that's something that has taken us about five to six years, along with some very creative work by the city of Oswego and our mayor, uh, Billy Barlow. Uh, You know, it's been a great partnership and it's working.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the how, because you used the word revitalization earlier. You know, if you asked my local housing rehabilitation authority, what they're doing, they would say, we're doing revitalization. It looks nothing like at all what you're doing. Um, they're doing all the old traditional thing let's go let's go get some vouchers, let's subsidize some poor people to move here let's tear down the most dilapidated houses and let the the lot sit vacant let's subsidize the new development on the edge of town uh, these are all th- th- These are all the tricks that my community's doing, and and the neighborhoods seem to just be stagnating or or lowering in value. I want to get into the how, but I first want to start with what the most incredible thing is, which I did not fully appreciate. I don't even think I fully appreciated the last time we talked, but you are a nonprofit organization. You get paid as executive director like six figures a year to, to manage this thing. <laughs>
1: no, you know, that's not true. No, I know that I I don't get paid anything. I know it's absolutely not. true. I don't get paid to do this.
0: Talk about the structure of your organization. And I think most importantly, talk about the structure of your organization in 2013, if you, if you would.
1: Oh, okay. I think people should know off the gate that, um, the sort of revolution that is occurring in the city of Oswego started out with just a homeowner like myself growing frustrated with the status quo. And, you know, me and my husband, Steve Phillips, we, we bought this old house, we, we began to restore it and we, it was a multi-year project. And as we, the more and more we got into it, we saw the conditions around the city sort of going the other way. And, and we're like, we can't stay here if, if, and, and continue to invest in our time and our energy and our money into a place if, if the place is going to just fall apart around us. And so I became very concerned back in 2011, 2012. I said, look, no one's going to solve this problem. No one's coming to save my city for me. So what is it that I can do? What is it that we can do? Uh, We did some research uh, quite a bit, in fact, literally first online, just finding out different models for how neighborhoods and cities are turned around. What do other cities do? What, What has worked? What doesn't work? Because what we were doing, which you described earlier, all those traditional community development approaches, total failure. Complete waste of time, very expensive, and the city still declined. All the affordable housing projects, all the all the different initiatives, waste of time. And I'm on the ground, and my neighbors and I, we all knew it. We, you know, sort of figured out this model called the Healthy Neighborhoods Model, which I talked about a few years ago. That was first uh, coined by David Belke in the 1990s, and It basically uh, turned the traditional community revitalization model on its head. And started getting on a growth or a build on strengths approach to a city, which we can talk about. But when you talk about the organization, it started out as just me getting a couple neighbors from some nearby neighborhoods that I knew were facing the same issues on board. And essentially forming a volunteer organization. And um, with a little twist in that because I am a faculty member of the State University of New York in Oswego, which is a great institution, I had a history of writing federal grants for scientific research. And I thought, you know, I can do this. I can retask myself and start to work at community development. You know, I was a neurobehavioral toxicologist, which has nothing to do with this stuff, right? But what I ended up doing is I approached a local foundation, the Richard S. Shineman Foundation, and approached them with an idea about designing an approach for the city of Oswego that involved rather than trying to fix what's broken building on what's working and i could write that grant through the suny oswego the state university of new york and oswego i could write a grant through them and be administered through the business office there and that sort of functioned as our fiduciary and so since that time six years later We've leveraged, now I think it's over 3 million, it might be 3.5 million by the end of this year, and private investment in the the targeted neighborhoods where we work and we're only growing. But this is an all-volunteer organization. It is absolutely accessible. It does not require an advanced planning degree. It requires commitment. And it really, to be frank, acknowledging that most people that live in these traditional neighborhoods, they know what needs to happen and and just put us in a position to help what needs to happen, happen.
0: Right. Let's talk about the mechanism then. How? This is really the trick to it. This idea of, and maybe we should dwell on the confidence aspect first. Mm-hmm. What I find, and I've written about this now quite a few times is this narrative in my community where, well, the people in these declining neighborhoods you know, they're just a little bit different than us. We have pride of place. We care about our place, but they don't. They're just different. They have got maybe different values or different morals or different, you know, thoughts about what a place. So when we go there and we see decline, what we're seeing is this deficient group of people who just don't know how to take care of stuff. That is the narrative in my community for decline. And that is a narrative that, that I've always rejected but you actually gave me the language to talk about this in terms of, of human wants and needs and, and, and desires. And I think it's beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about what's actually going on in the, the hearts and minds of people in neighborhoods like this? And then let's transition into how you actually started to attack that problem.
1: Yeah, it's very convenient to say, oh, well, those are the neighborhoods where people don't care and, well, you know, um, they just don't have the ability or wherewithal, and therefore we really can't do anything about that. And, and that's very self-serving and convenient uh, for a broader community to walk away from neighborhoods. But in fact, um, an econometric analysis of our community showed quite the opposite. So, for example, if you looked at our incomes and housing values, despite being you know, a middle to lower income community, Oswego, New York. Data showed quite clearly in 2013 that about every year, in aggregate, uh, people that lived inside the city of Oswego were withholding about $23 million in investments that they could plainly afford to invest in their homes and their yards and their neighborhoods, but which they were not doing and that in any other healthy community would normally be happening. Given our incomes relative to our housing values, that's what the data showed. The question is why not? Why were we not investing? And it comes down to what the signals are that the neighborhoods were sending and an issue that what we refer to as market confidence. Charles Buki, who's um, really brilliant individual that works at a firm called CZB in Alexandria, Virginia, that we partnered with Use a great term. And he said, confidence is the currency that all neighborhoods trade on. And I want to explore that for a moment. When you are in a community, let's say, you know, for whatever, regardless of why it started, you know, we all know that we lost employment, lost manufacturing in the Rust Belt and in the Midwest. People left. And when people leave, that can create shockwaves in the community as the factory closes down or an employer leaves, people move away and people begin to lose faith and confidence in the future of their own community, understandably so. The trouble is, is that that prospect, that concept of, of confidence in the future actually can become a huge determinant in what happens next. So it works somewhat like this. Uh, Joe down the street, uh, has seen that, uh, the, the town used to be booming. And so, but not so much anymore. We lost a few major employers. So Joe is not sure he's going to be staying in this community much longer. And so he makes a couple small decisions. I'm not going to spend the seven to $8,000 to paint my house. Cause I think I'm going to be gone in three to five years. And so the house starts looking a little less good than it used to. The neighbor across the street sees those signals and starts questioning, well, you know, this is not quite, Joe's not doing what he used to do, and it kind of, why should I do that? And each neighbor in turn begins to send a signal to every other neighbor about where the the neighborhood is going. Every house sends out signals. And as disinvestment occurs at first in small amounts, it starts to snowball to larger and larger amounts because you are communicating to the members of your block that you are essentially pulling out. And essentially, if you think of a neighborhood block like a mutually held stock, if you will, and everyone's a shareholder, and you start seeing people pulling out and selling their stock and leaving, you start to question whether you should stay. And so that's what I refer to as what we call a snowballing lack of confidence in the future that ends up becoming a self-perpetuating syndrome where declining conditions lead to a loss of confidence, which leads to lower levels of investment, which in turn creates greater declining conditions, and then even a further loss of confidence, further disinvestment, and it just keeps cycling over and over. And so eventually the neighborhoods I used the term three years ago, this bank run on confidence where everyone's pulling out and people conclude it doesn't make sense to stay here anymore because of everything that's happening around them. And your listeners that live in communities like this know exactly what I'm talking it's
0: about. A, exactly. I, I do. I, and as and soon we, as you described it, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is exactly the, the vibe. Yeah.
1: It's a real thing. It's an actual active process. And now, so when you take it to me like a swiggle where we found that every year, $23 million was left on the table, not invested, that's the quantitative side of what I just described qualitatively. And so the question then becomes, really, this is not about whether or not our neighbors can afford or have the wherewithal. It's that they've chosen that they don't have the confidence that it makes sense to do these things. And so we have to change conditions with them so that it begins to make sense to do those things. So that's a very important first principle, is that confidence is the currency that neighborhoods trade on. And if you want to see revitalization happening in a so-called weak market city, and that is a city where housing values have been stagnant or declining and people have been leaving, confidence is usually the first leverage point of the issue that has to be solved because if it doesn't make sense, if people don't have that confidence in the future, nothing else is going to follow, no matter how much you bribe them with subsidies or other uh, nonsense.
0: The idea that in 2013, you started as this handful of people who cared about their place. You wrote a grant and then you, you tapped into your family's trust fund, uh, you know, billion dollar trust fund and just started paying for things. Right. Isn't that, isn't that what happened? (laughs) Whose
1: family's billion-dollar trust fund? No, 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 no. What we, what we kind of came to is to realize we had to have a strategy. When you're looking at, there is not enough money that's ever going to be coming to our community that would ever be able to bring back our neighborhood. If you're waiting for someone to come along and save the neighborhood or some other employer to come here, you're going to be waiting a long time. So it really became clear, it was up to us. That is up to the individual members of our community and our neighbors, because because we had the collective. I mean, you talk about sidelined wealth, twenty three million dollars a year that could be leveraged if we if, if neighbors concluded it made sense to do so would be far beyond what any typical community development grant would leverage. So how do we access that sideline capital? How do we change conditions so that individual homeowners and renters themselves begin investing themselves? So second principle, the shortest path to a distressed community towards revitalization, the shortest distance to that route is to stop trying to fix what's broken, but to build on your strengths. Build on what's working rather than trying to fix what's broken. So the the next second principle, this build on strengths philosophy, which meant literally mapping out our city and the conditions of our neighborhoods wasn't that hard to do, where we had really, really strong neighborhoods, where we had neighborhoods that were sort of transitional or in between, and where we had neighborhoods that are really in frank distress. And unlike traditional community development approaches, which typically focus on that last area, the most distressed areas, usually with too few dollars and and not enough confidence in the people there to leverage uh, a recovery, we focused on the so-called middle markets, which are those neighborhoods where you still have some value there, you still have homeowners there that care, and they're still painting and taking care of things, but they're losing confidence because they see blight headed their way, they see things slowly uh, getting worse around their block, and those are your neighbors. They are, they are they are the the first place you go because that is the block where if you intervene now, you know the ability to recover that block affordably is really good. It'll the cost will pale in comparison if you wait till that block is tipped. We identify these so-called middle markets. Some people call transitional the place where you can actually build on a place that still has some working. Things that are still sort of working there, but they need they need some intervention. We obviously don't go to the strongest of strong places because those don't need um, intervention they're functioning just well I mean we're not out a lot of those are on the periphery of our town
0: as you described this, I think of like just the concept of triage on a battlefield right
1: yes, oh absolutely you, you you treat the patients that you can save in the near term, unlike human beings. blocks don't just die in a day or two I mean we actually over time begin to get to work in more difficult neighborhoods over time because we've stabilized the stronger one nearby and we start spreading. So I'll get to that. The last part, the last part about this is, is about who drives it. And that is um, neighbor resident leadership, neighbors lead. So what we require when we do this is we started out in 20, actually our first year of, of grants was really 2014. And what we said was to the community as a whole, um, we are willing to partner with you and your neighbors on your block, and we're going to do a, a, an approach. We're going to match you dollar for dollar for every exterior improvement you make on your house up to the first $1,000 out of our pocket, which is not a lot of money for us, but the rule is you have to get a minimum. Of five houses on your block to participate forming a cluster and actually because our grants are competitive we encourage people to really go for 10 or 15 houses on that block and the cool thing that happens when we require that is that then neighbors get together because we require that they get together as a group when they apply and we meet with every one of them And even before they they may or may not get the award, but we meet with them first and we gauge the readiness of the block. Do you have 10 to 15 households on this block that want into this? When we walk into someone's living room, when they've scheduled a meeting with their neighbors on a Monday night or a Saturday evening and they've got everyone assembled, we then can have the conversation. We know that block is likely ready to do this. And then we can have the real conversation about where do you want your block to go what does it mean for the future how can you guys collectively change this if we partner with you and that's magic and i would like to say it's magic all in one instance it's a magic that occurs in the multi-year way we partner with blocks that we that we work with and over time the people on those blocks realize hey you know we all want the same things You know, my neighbor across the street, we, despite how things have been, we just now realize everyone else wants what we all want. And everyone is saying we're all willing to be invest back into this. And when that's the magic where, when neighbors realize the other neighbors are also going to invest, then your confidence to invest goes up, your confidence to invest your time and your energy and your money, because you know, you're not alone anymore. And when that happens, the, the the effects on a block are just profound. And uh, And I would say the vast majority of anyone on a block that we've worked with for at least two seasons would tell you the same thing, what's happened on their block. And we work with the blocks year over year, and the blocks get steadily, incrementally better year over year. And what's really cool is that because of the fact that We just, all we need to do is just unlock that confidence. We may grant a homeowner, let's say $1,000 in matching grants for exterior improvement. They'll put in two, three, four, five thousand $5,000 into that house because now we've unlocked their confidence that it makes sense to invest. And we start to see that spread throughout the blocks. And so I think... As I said, uh, on the, the first year we did it, we granted out about $90,000 or so in grants, but the neighbors invested 360000 around that amount. Um, by the time we've gotten to 2019, we typically will grant about 150000 per year out. Um, and typically our blocks are collectively investing between half a million and three quarters of a million each year. And, 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 and it's, it's so inexpensive on the community development side, on our side, because most of the investment is occurring from the private families that live on these blocks, and then down the road, um, they get to experience the rewards of that, Chuck, which are they feel better about where their block is, they know their neighbors more, um, the housing values, which we now have six years of data on, actually start to rise again, in the, not in a, a meteoric way, but in a healthy way, a normal, healthy way. That's a good thing. And, and people just start moving into these neighborhoods because people know these are neighborhoods that are good places to be because the people there care. And over time, Chuck, it just starts to take on a life of its own. So I'm, I'm at six years, we're very happy with where we are. We have a ways to go, but the progress has been amazing.
0: You are spending to unleash hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars a year, basically, the budget that like a typical HRA would spend rehabbing one house.
1: Yep. That's right. Pretty much. So for example, we have a budget around 150 to $175,000 a year from all our funding sources, depending on the year. All right. And in that year, that money, that's, that's what we spend. That money leverages around uh, half a million to 600,000 every year we basically are leveraging the private capital of individuals. So we could do a traditional community development approach and say, oh, let's take the $150,000 and maybe we can rehab one or two or maybe three, if you're lucky, um, subsidized housing units in a distressed neighborhood to make more affordable housing. And then, of course, that neighborhood is still distressed and you've temporarily improved a couple houses, but the neighborhood writ large hasn't changed and it just still slides down. And 10 years down the road, the houses are now decrepit again. In contrast, we're working with the Sweetland Ways not previously done, which is to say, let's take that money and use it to empower every stakeholder on that block to change the course of where their block goes. And for very small amounts of money, the impact far exceeds what traditional community development approaches have done. We've got people that have told us that they were thinking of leaving, now excited to stay. We have um, lower income families that I perceive as having probably the first time in their foreseeable future where they can have equity that is going to be stable and rising in their own homes rather than just a money-losing proposition, which is very important, because for most people, their house is their largest investment. And we have people who are excited to move into the neighborhoods in Oswego, and so it's a win all around, and the energy that spreads throughout the community, it's, it's in our city government now, it's in the community now, it's spread to other sectors, there's a downtown revitalization movement coming on, because it all starts out with a simple idea, let's build on our value, let's make ourselves better than we are, let's make ourselves the best version of ourselves, rather than try to sell ourselves to the lowest bidder
0: you and I chat regularly, but we also, I I follow all your stuff on social media and I've, I've tried to connect to other people in your community and you've, you've been a, a strong towns advocate. So you've pointed people in our direction too. And I've, I've taken the opportunity to make those connections. Here's what I've seen. I've seen not only high return on investment things going on. I've seen the balance sheet of the community go up. I've seen people get wealthier. And from a financial standpoint, this is all moving in a super positive direction. But I've also seen people caring for each other. I've also seen people growing as neighbors and finding value in their neighborhoods. All the photos of, of people hanging out on their porches together and and kind of taking pride in each other. Can you talk just a little bit about how this currency of confidence actually is almost a more valuable currency than, uh, you know, than money, than, than the dollar is. Than money. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you said that because depending on who I'm talking to, I use different language that I feel will communicate it best. But, but you brought up a very good point, which is really in, in a movement like this, confidence and participation matters more than money, how much you're investing. Because you're really building a community from the ground up, or you're rebuilding your own community. And so one of the things that uh, when I started out, I didn't believe, but six years later, I am an absolute convert to the idea, is that um, the social capital in neighborhoods, the connection between neighbors, has to be grown alongside. If that's not there, if neighbors don't know each other, or they don't trust each other, there's no way you're gonna get them to work as a team to, to move a block forward. And so everything that we do with neighbors, whether it's a, a particular type of grant, if it's the block challenge grant, or if it's say one of our neighborhood pride grants that involves improving streets and tree plantings and things like that, we always require that a minimum number of neighbors have to be involved, a certain threshold before we'll even fund the block. And so that's the initial carrot, but once they join in, the neighbors are working together, getting to know each other. And I will just tell you that the building of those forms of social capital between the neighbors strengthens the block in ways that your, your classic economists won't see. Because people make choices about where they want to live. And if they live in a block where they also feel their own neighbor's are on the same page as them, they like their neighbors, they like the people they live around, they enjoy them, you're now actually part of a, a real community, that is a huge driver in investment decisions about whether you're going to stay and invest or pull out and leave. And I can't tell you the number of times my neighbor Tanya Miller would tell me, you know, just the fact that I now know who Patty Domicola is down the street has has totally changed so much for me. So many blocks have said that the biggest change for them of all is the neighborly connections that have been made. And I know sometimes when I talk to certain guys, they roll their eyes at this because they think it's all about the physical improvements. Like I once thought, and I'm here to tell you, that's a mistake that the best metaphor I can give is that if you want people to act as one, they have to be connected in some way. And I sometimes use a metaphor where it helps, Try to imagine you're a football team and you have to win a game and none of the players ever met with each other or ever practiced together. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. So threading social capital, requiring that the neighbors act as a team for every single uh, activity we help to support is a critical ingredient because it is the social capital that is the glue that holds us together long term. And it's one of the best parts about it because we've experienced it. I've experienced it myself in my own neighborhood. It's really, it's just a great thing to, to, to have happening around you.
0: You've been kind to me, like incredibly kind. Uh, But one of the places where you're like, yeah, Chuck, I think you got this wrong was uh, my annoyance with enforcement by the city you're not like a a zealot (laughs) when it comes to uh, the city doing enforcement, but you certainly woke me up or made me maybe a little more embracing of the city government's role in kind of helping nudge this along and being a a partner where I I looked at them as being almost a tyrant in in my place. What is the role of the local government here? What can they do? Um, Can you just go through a little bit what you think would be the the ideal way a, a local government a city could help an effort like yours
1: yeah be happy to so let me let me paint a little picture I think actually it's a much bigger piece than one might think and, and oftentimes a misunderstood piece um, first of all back in 201112 it was very hard to get any part any partnership with the city of Oswego in a way that that, that was helping, and that's just the truth. I mean, there were some things, yes, but it was more difficult than. Part of it is, you know, when people start to see the successes that we were having, the the new generation of political leaders comes along and sometimes sees that. And, and we have a, a new mayor. I think he might be the youngest New York State mayor, Billy Barlow, in Oswego, New York. He saw that this was an important thing, and. Since that time, you know, the work that he's done with the city, the the cooperation he's had with us has been really important and very helpful. So what are some of those things that, that cities can do? I think the most important thing, if it were just a broad principle, is to look for places where the residents are investing and then double down on them and those investments. And so that can mean many things. So for example, code enforcement is stretched everywhere. Okay. But if you have on a block that is otherwise growing a recalcitrant slumlord, it makes market sense for the city to go after that slumlord because they can't go after them all at once, but that's when you should prioritize because it's the rest of the block is also moving forward and that will help their confidence. So sometimes directing code enforcement with limited resources in places where you can render a good outcome is is very effective. And I believe that's happened. Well, I know that's happened in the city of Oswego many times. Other things can be, look, what is the tree canopy on that street like? The city has resources to plant trees. I would strongly recommend that a city plant trees where neighbors are investing also to grow the value and quality of life and creating what that block is, the human habitat of that block everything from sidewalk repair it's all the small things and i know that you know about this because independently of me you arrived at the same conclusion um in minnesota it's it's the next smallest thing you can do and it doesn't break the bank there's much more to that we could talk about i mean everything from oh paving of streets to even things like the way the police are we have a great police department in the city of oswego um officers getting out on foot and patrolling areas where neighbors are asking for investments asking for help all that stuff feeds in the one thing i would caution though is i want there's a little bit of a trap here which is i mentioned code enforcement earlier there's a trap where people want to wait for the city to start doing these things that would be nice but generally speaking that's not always successful in every city you have to lead. You do not wait for others to make things better. No great community got great because code enforcement came along. Soho wasn't created that way. village None of that happened. That happened because of the people in those neighborhoods made them special. And also to remember that if you're in a neighborhood that needs to be improved, that needs revitalization, just understand the limits of things. It's about neighborhood confidence and private investment. Something like code enforcement is not going to revitalize your neighborhood, it is not going to do that. And the reason it's not is because code enforcement only enforces minimum standards of habitability. I like to tell people boarded-up windows are code, right? I mean, you, you, you know, code doesn't create flowers and pride and historically painted houses and landscaped yards and block parties and all the things that people want in their lives in, in, a, in a strong block. So code enforcement has this role in that it will go after it'll it'll put a floor in the market it'll say we will in our community this is the lowest we will let a house fall to and no farther so that provides a market floor which is important for market confidence and investment confidence but it really has to be the the, the neighbors have to lead it cuz code enforcement alone cannot turn a block around And that's the biggest lesson that we learned is if you want to see change in your community, you have to grow it yourself. You have to get involved. It's it's a cliche, but it's true.
0: Yeah. I have some very strong opinions on the approach that you've taken and, and the way that it interacts with the poorest people in our society. When we talk about housing today in a macro sense, we're generally talking about just a handful of things. We're, we're talking about housing for very wealthy people. How do we build exclusive stuff and then use that as kind of a, a trickle down to others? We talk about 30-year mortgage products and how do we get middle-class people into them and, and subsidize them to make that happen? And we talk about how do we give the poorest people the most minimal access to a roof over their heads? I feel like there's this whole part missing that is about, building individual wealth and capacity. Can you talk just a little bit about how the approach that Oswego is taking and what you've seen affects some of these people who I I think would be normally left behind by our current set of options that we, we tend to roll out.
1: Sure. So you're asking a question about, um, how does this play into uh, lower income families? How does this play into areas in our community where people are really struggling? So a couple thoughts. Um, one is I want to be clear, even on the blocks you work that are transitional, you have a mix of middle high and low incomes on those blocks. So they're very integrated. So in that respect, um, we don't use income as a barrier or a requirement to participation. It, it, so all, income levels participate. So we work with many low income families and there are some blocks more in more recent years where low income is the predominant um, demographic on a block. And so let's talk about them. First of all, let's talk about what is failing. And and what's failing is, you know, large top-down programs that, that sort of subsidize the rehab of individual homes here and there wherever you can get a Section 8 voucher to go, and typically Section 8 vouchers aggregate in weak neighborhoods, and you start to reconcentrate poverty in clustered areas, which is associated with all sorts of very bad long-term outcomes, educationally and socially and economically. The question then can shift to, look, what do we do so that, so that we economically integrate all income levels into our community in a healthy way? So in one particular block that I work on in the city of Oswego, you know, they they surprise you. You know, this one block, you know, approached me one year by this one block leader, and she expressed an interest in working with us. And I knew that block was struggling, and I knew it was predominantly low-income block. But we said, you know what, let's try it because we want to do experiments, and this isn't too far off where we're working now. Let's, Let's try it out. So we tried it. First of all, the, the, the ironic thing is that actually the first year they applied, they actually didn't get one of our awards. They got a, sort of a smaller award. It was called a Pride Grant. Not important. But what I will tell you is what that block did with even the smaller amount of money that we granted them was one of the most transformative things of any of the other blocks that we were involved with that were given even more money. Because if you don't have a lot of money, you do have time and energy. It's time, energy, or money. You just need to put one or two of those things in. And so on this particular block um, that was pretty marginal, um, we see that the neighbors there, they've painted their houses, they've put up new shutters, they've, they've, they've done gardens out front. The neighborhood is palpably changing. The people in it are socializing. I can't tell you the number of times they've gone down there and they're all outside, hanging out, talking together. And this particular year, um, we talked about the fact that they just don't have enough tree coverage in their block. And uh, they agreed, yeah, we think we need trees on that block. So we work with them in the city so we go to get trees planted. And what's happening on their block, and, and I'm not, not, it's not to say that it just happens overnight or that it's a linear trajectory, but that block has been getting incrementally stronger every year. And then the people that live there, what, what, what the benefit for them is not only just being in a stronger block that feels better, and their quality of life is improved, and they know their neighbors, those are all the important things. But long term, you're talking about the real potential of stable or rising home equity. And there are homeowners on that block, right? You know, especially at the lower income area, if you own a home, then that is going to be your largest investment. And so it is in everyone's best interest all income levels that your investments are protected over time so that by the time you are far older and it's time to downsize or maybe you can no longer live in a house by yourself whatever happens in old age when you sell your house you actually can sell it at a price that has a dramatic effect on the quality of life you're going to have after you leave the worst thing we can do is let just let blocks go let them slide and so that then when someone gets much older and they, they sell their house at a loss 30 years down the road and they have no wealth, that that's the crime. And so we strengthen neighborhoods. And the happy thing is that as the neighborhood strengthen, strengthens, of course, the values of the houses will tend to strengthen along with it because as the neighborhood gets stronger, people are going to want to move into it. And I should probably say, I know what's on people's minds, so I want to get it out there right now, I hear the clarion cries about gentrification in the background. Gentrification is worrying about gentrification in cities like Oswego, New York, or Fulton, New York, or Brainerd, Minnesota. It is like worrying that if you feed a starving person food, they're going to become morbidly obese. That That is so far away from where we're at. These are blocks that need investment so that they can become healthy. And part of investing means growing the quality of that block, growing the capacity of the neighbors on that block to improve their circumstances. And that also is going to mean, if you're successful, demand for that block will rise. And yes, you'll see an increase in housing prices. But unlike displacement and gentrification, we're not pushing people out. We're growing the wealth of the people that are there. That's the goal. That's one of the goals. You can't, on one hand, worry about distressed neighborhoods and concentrated poverty and blight and want revitalization, but then on the other hand say, no, but we don't want wealth coming into a neighborhood. That's an incoherent approach. You you, you have to let the neighborhood grow.
0: I want to close with a couple things. The first one is that I have told so many people about you uh, about the work being done in Oswego, and I know they've started to call you and say, "Hey, uh, could you help us out? Could you, you know, give us some advice?" And what I've told you, <laughs> as a friend, is that your time is incredibly valuable. You were like where I was a decade ago, where if someone called me, I was so happy to talk that I'd be like, yeah, let's get together. And I'd fly across the whole country on my own time just to to share this message, because I was so passionate about it. I feel like you're like this missionary. I want to say this to people listening. Call Paul, ask him your question, but help him out. He's on a deal here too. I would love you to be one of these people out speaking and doing workshops and talking to others, because it's a... It's a gift you have, and uh, while you love us, uh, your city, and I I respect that, I really would like to see your ideas and your approach replicated in cities across the country because it would do a lot of good for a lot of people. So let me just close with this. When I take stock of my own life and who I am and, and what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, all the things that I would like to be, you have those things. I'm saying this with all genuine and sincerity, uh, you're my hero. I mean, you, you're you out there d- with the capacity to do things and relate to people and, and and just make things happen in a way that I have personally struggled to do. And, and I take a lot of inspiration from you and what you've done. And, and I feel like just knowing you has made me in many ways a better person. So I, I just wanted to close with that. Thank you. Because you know you and I are friends, and 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 we talk a lot, and I I know that I mean a lot to you, and I, I I'm glad that's true, but I just wanted to make sure that that you knew that you've had a profound effect on me, and I'm just very grateful for uh, for our friendship.
1: Wow, I appreciate that, Chuck. Seriously, um,
0: the feeling is
1: mutual in that you guys Strong Towns has given us a vocabulary in places where we were missing letters, and I just love the fact there's something important about the fact that without even knowing each other, we came to similar conclusions independently. What I would close with about whether one is a hero or whatever, is I want to remind people that, you know, one of the most important things that I ever heard was a phrase I use often in talks I give, you know, when it comes to achieving what you you think you need to do in your neighborhood or your block, if you look ahead and it seems to be daunting, just remember this. You are better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. That's what I tell myself.
0: Absolutely. Paul, Stuart, wh- what is the best way for people to get a hold of you? The
1: best way to reach me is via email, at our, um, our Google email. So it is It's long, unfortunately. It's, I'll say it, then we'll spell it out, perhaps. It's, it's oswego-renaissance-at-gmail.com. No spaces. So it's Oswego is spelled O-S-W-E-G-O. And then the word renaissance, I won't spell that out, you can look it up. At gmail.com. And I I usually am able to get back. Used to be uh quicker now within a couple days. I can usually get back. And I'd be happy to chat with people uh if, if they're looking for ideas and thoughts, sure.
0: And the group is the Oswego Renaissance Association. Check them out online. Follow them on Facebook, because if you follow them on Facebook, you're going to get a lot of uh, inspiring stories pumped out to you. Thank you for taking the time, friend. And seriously, I hope you know that I have been working to get you here to Brainerd, and we will absolutely make that happen. At some point, I'm trying to get the community ready, because I don't want to waste... I feel like I, I'm gonna have this chance and uh I don't wanna waste it. So uh yeah, thank you for being patient with me.
1: Absolutely, no problem. I I always enjoy our conversations.
0: Well and and give your uh, your tiny little lap dog a a, a a bone for me, all right?
1: Oh my hundred pound shepherd max. <laughs> yes. Uh it's, the Velociraptor that is my dog. Yes, yes.
0: It, it's funny He's because you've, uh, you've seen Gryffindor's photos now when we got him, um, yeah. <laughs> my girls wanted a, a tiny little, uh, yippie dog, you know, and, and we kind of compromised. We were going to get a dog that we thought would be around like 30 or 40 pounds maybe. And he's yet yeah, topping out at 90. <laughs> so yeah,
1: there you go. 90 pounds. It's like having a small
0: horse in the house, but they're big babies, yeah. aren't they? Yes, they are.
1: I mean, my dog, Max is a complete like puppy. He just doesn't realize he's a hundred pounds. And so, you know, you have to be accustomed to getting tackled now and again, and he's a good boy and you know, he's, he's, and he loves people. He just wants to play all the time.
0: Right. Well, thank you. Let's talk again soon.
1: Thank you, Chuck.
0: Yep. Take care, Paul. Bye-bye.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: And thanks, everybody. I know that was inspiring. I'm so proud to be able to share that kind of stuff with you. I talk about Paul in the book. There's a lot in there that we can all learn from and copy and do in our own places. So go do it. Keep doing what you can, everyone, to build a strong town. Take care.
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
0: Bill, 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 that's a start oh, la,
1: la. They know that America's one big pothole right now oh, la, la. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions
0: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating
1: Oh, made that city!